Welcome. My name is J.B. Selectman, so welcome to Harvest, and I hope you guys are doing well. I'm one of the elders here at this church. I love this church. I love Jesus. I love the Word of God, and I love when I get to preach. Uh, I was... Uh, woke up literally at four o'clock this morning, not on purpose, just eyes wide open and ready, but uh, just so excited because I love the Word of God. And I love that every Sunday we get to teach the Word of God here and listen to the Word of God here and let the Word of God change us and point us to Christ. Is that right? That's awesome. I love it. So it's a joy and a privilege for me to get to to share with you this morning. And I I humbly uh, accept this and and I hope that uh, we have open hearts, open ears, and that the Word of God will be the seed in our soil that produces fruit. Amen? That's what I hope. If you're joining us uh, or you've been with us, we're in a series in Luke, and today we're going to be in Luke chapter 18. So we've been investigating Jesus, as the screen says here, for about a year and a half, and Jesus is a good person to investigate. And so we've been in Luke, really, the whole gospel. Um, But specifically, since about January, we've been in this section of Luke called the Jerusalem Journey. The Jerusalem journey. And the Jerusalem journey is from Luke chapter 9 to Luke chapter 19. So it's 10 chapters. It's a large segment of the gospel of Luke. And the reason it's called the Jerusalem journey is because in Luke chapter 9, Jesus says to his disciples, I'm setting my face towards Jerusalem. I'm setting my face towards Jerusalem because the big event in his life, you know, the main event last night was the fight. That was the main event. Well, the main event in Jesus' life was the cross. And so he says, I'm setting my face to Jerusalem to get there, to go to the cross. That was in Luke chapter 9. And from Luke chapter 9 all the way up to Luke 19, which we'll cover over the next two weeks, it's the Jerusalem journey where he is training his disciples, intense disciple training of the 12 and those who are following him. And so with the training also comes intense persecution from the nation who will ultimately put Christ on the cross. And so as the heat is turned up by the nation and by the oppressors, those who are seeking to destroy Christ, as the heat is turned up, so is the training. And so he's teaching these awesome lessons to the disciples on what it looks like to be a disciple of Christ, what it looks like to be a kingdom person in the world today. The kingdom of God is like, and he's showing them how they will live once he goes to Jerusalem, goes to the cross, is raised from the dead, and goes back to be with the Father, and leaves literally the kingdom in their hands under the power of the Holy Spirit. That's pretty awesome. And so that's where we are in Luke. And so if, you, if, you, if you've been tracking with us over the last couple of weeks, he's telling them to be a disciple, you need compassion. You remember that? That you're going to be marked as men and women, disciples of Christ, who have compassion. You're going to be humble servants of Christ in this world, because Christ is a humble servant. Um, remember last week, he says, you're going to pray without ceasing. You should always pray and not lose heart. So he's leaving them with these master life lessons before he leaves them, quote, to go to the cross. Do you see that? And so today, excuse me, today we're going to pick up in an incredible passage. And these, these passages that I'm going to preach today, they're in all three synoptic gospels. They're in Matthew, they're in Mark, and they're in Luke, and they're in this order. Matthew inserts one little parable in his account of these texts. But it's really cool to think about Matthew, Mark, and Luke putting these passages together. And so these passages are meant to be read as a subunit. And so that's what we're going to do today. And these passages follow the parable that he told last week that Kenan preached on of the Pharisee and 
the tax collector. Do you remember the difference between the Pharisee coming to God and saying, I fast, I tithe, I'm not like these other people. And he was a self-righteous, prideful man standing before a holy God. Do you remember that guy's prayer versus the tax collector? And what did the tax collector say? God, have mercy on me, a sinner. So it's an illustration of the proud and the humble. And right off the heels of that parable comes our text today. Okay, let me pray real quick and then we'll dive into Luke chapter 18, verse 15. God, we've already sung the songs that honor you. We've already uh, seen the nations that are glorifying you, Father. And now I pray for your word to go forth, Father. As was said by Steve Tucker, I pray that you would anoint the teaching of your word, Father. Uh, That you would give us ears to hear and hearts to listen, Father. Unless your spirit speaks, nothing of significance will be said pray that Christ is magnified and exalted in this service and this sermon. It's in your name I pray. Amen. Amen. All right, Luke chapter 18. Uh, we got a long way to go, and uh, so we're just going to go. And uh, I'm going to give you guys three application points as we're going, and I'll tell you when I get to those points. But let's start with Luke chapter 18, verse 15. And this is a very famous passage for some of you because, remember, as they're doing this intense training, as they're on their way to Jerusalem, all of a sudden here, sh- here come some characters that show up. And Luke chapter 18, verse 15 says, Now they were bringing even infants to him that he might touch them. And when the disciples saw it, they rebuked them. So get the scene here, and this is a a very famous scene to some of you, that as they're doing this training, as they're on their way to the cross, all of a sudden some parents show up with their kids, right? That never interrupts anything. And and so here comes the parents with the kids, and, and they remember that Christ is one who can provide blessing. They remember that he can do miracles, that he can perform healings, and so of course they want to get their kids to Christ just so he could touch them or just so he could bless them. And the disciples looked at the parents and said, hey, We don't have time for that right now. It says that the disciples rebuked the parents for bringing the kids to Christ. This would be, I thought about this, like us showing up in the Grizz locker room in about two hours. You know, the game's in a little bit. And so they're in there getting their game plan, just like Christ and the disciples were getting their game plan. They're working on things. What are we going to do? Offense, defense. And all of a sudden, we show up and the whole Harvest Nursery's out there. What are you guys doing? Hey, man, we want our kids to get some autographs from Coach Yeager and, and Gasol. And the, the trainers would be like, you can't, we're, we have business to attend to. We're busy. That's what the disciples told these parents. We're about our business right now. We don't have time for interruptions. And Jesus says, let the children come to me and do not hinder them. For listen to this, he turns the story on its head right here. For the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. You need to underline that phrase, such as these. The kingdom of God belongs to such as these. Jesus looks at this situation and uses the children as a walking illustration. Okay? And so if you've you've ever read a children's Bible or seen the Sunday School Bulletin Board, you've seen um, the picture of Jesus and the kids on his lap and the Sea of Galilee in the background and the tree, and they're kind of just playing around. And that's, that's a good scene here. But what Jesus does is turns this scene into a very significant theological truth. Are you ready? He says, the kingdom of God belongs to children such as these. Okay? And I read some commentaries on this, a couple of scholars on this, and I prayed about this a lot. And most people agree, at least, that children have two significant characteristics that allow them to enter the kingdom of God. Number one is humility. Number one, babies and children have increased an increased amount of humility versus the rest of us. Like, it doesn't take much for a kid to know that they are a little fish 
in a big pond. It doesn't take much for a child to know how much help they need, that there's authorities. When they go into a big environment, they kind of get nervous and shrink back. So children have an immense characteristic of humility. And Jesus says, let the little children come to me because the kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these. When you approach God, harvest, you approach him in humble faith. Amen? We just said, come ye sinners. That text gets us in the right position before God that when we approach a holy God, we need to know that we're coming to a holy God, a majestic God, an awesome God as sinners in need of saving. And in that way, we are humble before the Lord. The parable last week, the Pharisee said, I am like this, I am like this, I am like this. And the humble tax collector said, have mercy on me, a sinner. He was humbled before the Lord. So kids have an an enormous amount of humility. And kids also have uh, an enormous amount of reliance on someone else. If you're a parent, you know that. um, That children rely on someone else, whether it's their biological parents or an adopted set of parents, to raise them. Children rely on parents. Um, I'll never forget when this was made so clear to me. My, um, my daughter was born in July, several eight years ago, and my wife started the Downline Institute in August. So we had had this little girl for six weeks, and uh, my wife had done, was doing the, the infant motherly stuff and was doing the nursing and the feeding, so I, I didn't have much to do with that. I helped change and was helped doing some things, but she was taking care of my daughter. I'll never forget the night that she left, and I had a bottle, and she said, now she eats around 7.30. I'm going to class. I'll be gone for two and a half hours. Don't screw this up. I said, you got it, honey. And uh, she said, you know, so I made the bottle, did the little warm-up thing on my arm, and I was sitting there in my recliner, 7.30 on a Monday night, and I remember feeding my daughter for the first time and going, oh, my gosh. Now, academically and in my head, I knew that I had to raise my daughter. She was relying on me to raise her and her mother to raise her, but it never hit me until that exact moment when I was feeding her how utterly helpless and reliant this little child was on me and her mother. And that's how we are with God. Like every moment of every day, we are relying on God and His grace and His Spirit and His mercy in our lives for His glory. So Jesus says, come to me as children. Do not hinder these little children. For the kingdom of God belongs to such as these humble, reliant people coming to God, relying on him as our father. Amen? That's a characteristic of a disciple. That's a characteristic of what it looks like to be a Christian in this world. There's one other phrase I want you to notice in verse 17. Uh, Jesus says, Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. I want you to circle that word receive. He says you must receive the kingdom of God like a child. You must receive it. You don't, here it is, achieve the kingdom of God. And there's many people in this country and there's many faiths around the world that think the way you get to God is to achieve salvation. That you almost like climbing the ladder. You've got to work your way to God and work your way to God and achieve God's position. Like the Tower of Babel. You remember the Tower of Babel in the Old Testament? They said, let us build a tower to the heavens. And it didn't work because the text says God looked down on them. Right, So I want, you to, I want us to understand that as disciples, that when we preach the gospel, when we share with others, we need to preach a gospel of receiving the kingdom of God, of receiving salvation and not achieving salvation. Amen? 
Because the world says, you can, the religions say, you can achieve salvation. You can achieve status before God. The gospel says you must receive. In Romans chapter 5 and Romans chapter 6, Paul says that salvation is a free gift. Amen? What do you do with a gift? You receive it. In John chapter 1, John says, For as many as received him, for as many as received Jesus, to them he gave the right to become children of God. So we need to preach a gospel of reception. We receive Christ by grace through faith. That is how we enter the kingdom of God. Amen? And so he's telling them to be humble, to be reliant on the Father. Now, in every gospel, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and and all three synoptics, following this picture of the children in humility and reliance on the Father comes this guy. So you've got this humble picture of the kids and the humble picture of the disciples followed by this man whom we call the rich young ruler. You have to read all three accounts to, to see that he's described as rich, he's described as young, and he's described as a ruler. And here comes this man approaching Jesus. Jesus just said, bring the kids to me for the kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these. And here comes this man walking up to Christ. He was an up-and-coming leader, wealthy ruler. Maybe, maybe he was going to become ruler of a city or ruler of a synagogue. And here he approaches Christ face to face. And let's listen to this interaction. And a ruler asked him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Now, some people bust him for this question that Jesus just said, you have to receive the kingdom. You can't do anything to gain the kingdom. And this guy comes up immediately and says, well, what do I got to do to inherit eternal life? And I think it's a good question. I I, I have a problem with what he called Jesus, but I think it's a good question. It's it's the same question when Peter preached in Acts 2 on the day of Pentecost. Peter just dropped straight Bible, straight Bible, straight Bible, straight Jesus on these people. And they were so convicted in their spirits, they looked around and says, brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said, repent and be baptized and receive the Holy Spirit. So that's a question after you hear the gospel or understand or see Jesus, you ask, what shall I do? So I think it's a good question. I do, however, think that when he called him good teacher, he was missing the point of Jesus. That Jesus had spent almost three years now presenting himself as the Savior, the Son of God, the Son of David, the Son of Man, the spotless Lamb to take away the sins of the world. And this guy still late in the game approaches Jesus as, hey, good teacher. And most scholars say he was kind of schmoozing him here. Hey, teach, come here. I know all these kids are running around. Oh, you got these disciples. I need to talk to you about something. We're kind of equal here. You're a ruler. I'm a ruler. You're a leader. I'm a leader. I need to ask you a question. What do I have to do? Like, I know what you're saying about everyone else, but what do I have to do? And listen what Jesus says. And Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. I love this. Now, some people use this verse to say, I've had a a, a man from another faith say, even Jesus said he wasn't good. Even Jesus said he wasn't good. And so the rest of the Bible talks about how Jesus was sinless, right? One of the verses we quote here all the time is 2 Corinthians 5.21. You want to put that in your notes. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, He made him who knew no sin to become sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God. That Jesus knew no sin is what the Bible says. Or Hebrews 4.15. Hebrews 4.15 says that Jesus was tempted in every way as we are, ready, yet without sin. So the Bible is very clear that he is the sinless, spotless lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. So why did he say here, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. Because this rich young ruler approached Christ in his humanity He said, hey, teacher, 
I need to tell you, he approached Christ as a human being. And so Jesus did what he came to earth to do in his humanity is to point human beings to the Father. Amen? That the whole point of Jesus' life was to point me and to point you and to point the whole world to God the Father. And so he appeals to the Father. He doesn't want this man to respond to him as a good teacher. He wants this man to respond to God the Father. And he says, I'm appointing to God the Father. Look at this verse, Sam, on the, on, the, on, the, on the screen here. I love this verse. It says, for God who said, this is 2 Corinthians 4, 6, for God who said, let light shine out of darkness has shown in our hearts to give light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Paul is saying here that if you want to know the light of God, you look in the face of Christ. If you want to know the knowledge of God, you look in the face of Jesus Christ. If you want to know the glory of God, you look in the face of Jesus Christ. That's why we're investigating Jesus, because we want to understand the Father. We want to understand God more. And this guy approaches Christ as a human, and Christ points him to the Father. Do you see that? So he points him to the Father. And he says, Jesus, continue on in verse 20, says, You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. And the man says, all these things I have kept from my youth. What do you think? Anybody? Anybody want to, when you stand before a holy God, the God who gave Moses the law, does anybody want to float that one? Just kind of float it up there and see how it goes. You see the difference between the humble, reliant children and the proud, rich, young ruler. Jesus not only appeals to the goodness of God. Why do you call me good? Only God is good. He appeals here to the law of God, the law of Moses. He says, you want to know how you attain God? You want to know how you can achieve salvation? Keep the law. God says, I did that. Um, I love what Martin Luther says about the law. Um, Martin Luther said, the law is a mirror a hammer, and a whip. That when we look at the law, when we look at the commandments of God, when we see that, that the holy God is who gave us those commandments, we are supposed to be looking in the mirror of our own sinfulness and our own need. Like when you see the law, you're not supposed to go, hey, I got that one, I got that one, I got that one. You're supposed to see the mirror of your own sinfulness. Like there's no way I can keep that law. The law is meant to point to our sin. He said it's a mirror. Martin Luther also said that the law was a hammer, that when you see the law and the holiness and the majesty of God, that the law and God's glory and God's goodness hammers us or smashes us. to It literally gets rid of our pride before him. It's a mirror, a hammer, and then Martin Luther said, the law is a whip that drives you to your knees in need of a Savior. Amen? I can't do it. And so this guy, instead of looking at the Savior face to face and saying, I need help, I need salvation, he says, I've done all this from my youth. Verse 22, when Jesus heard this, he said to him, well, one thing you still lack, three commands he gives this man here. Sell all that you have, distribute to the poor, and follow me. He gives him two financial commands and one disciple command. Sell all that you have, distribute to the poor, and follow me. He knew this man's heart. When Jesus knows you, he knows your heart. He knows you inside and outside. He knows what you struggle with, what you deal with. He knows what you cling so closely to. And he knew this man, this rich, young ruler, trusted in and glorified in and magnified in his own wealth. Steve Winstead told us a few weeks ago, that in this society, in, in modern day, in, uh, in, in first century Israel, that the wealthier you were, 
the perception from society was the holier you were. That the more money you had, the more blessings God must be showing on you, the holier you must be. So if you were wealthy, you were considered the elite, the varsity. If you were poor, you were considered the non-elite or the junior varsity. So this guy approaches Christ and society thinks this guy must be doing something right before God because he's got it and we don't. And Jesus says, you want to know how you can follow me? You want to know how you can inherit eternal life? You must give it all away and come and follow me. What an appeal to this man. What an appeal. And so I thought about this personal application point number one for my life and for your life. So if you're taking notes, this is application point number one. What in it is in my life? What is in my life or what is in your life that is keeping me from following Christ? What is in my life or what is in your life that is keeping me or you from following Christ? This guy, it was his money. He could not give it up in order to follow Christ. He could not enter the race. He could not enter the game to follow Christ because he couldn't lay aside what he had. Um, one of my favorite verses is Hebrews 12, 1 and 2. Hebrews 12, 1 and 2 says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us, listen to this, lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely New American says, which so easily entangles us and let us run the race with endurance that is set before us, looking to Jesus. This man was face to face with Christ. He was looking at Jesus, but he couldn't lay it aside, his weights and his sin. He couldn't lay it aside and enter the race because they clung so closely to him. Do you see it? And I've spent many hours this week meditating and thinking and praying on the things that cling to me that keep me from entering. And notice it says there's weights and there's sins. Like some of us have a sin that's keeping us from following Christ. Like it's obvious. Like you know, you're like, oh man, I know what it is. It's a, it's a sin. It's a violation of the will of God. It's a sin that's keeping me from following Christ. But some of us, it may be a good thing. It may just be a weight. It may be something that's just weighing us down. Career, family, hobbies, free time. Could be your money. What is weighing you down to keep you from following Christ? It's a, it's a personal question that each of us need to ask ourselves. For this man, it was his money. Now, it says here, but when he heard these things, look at verse 23, he became very sad for he was extremely rich. Mark says he walked away weeping. The humble Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden. Come to me like a child in humility and reliance. The proud, rich, young ruler walks away from Christ because he was a man of great wealth. And I think we need to be careful as disciples, as a gospel-driven disciple-making church, that we cling to Christ. We continue to follow him and we continue to lay aside weights and sins which keep us from running the race. Don't walk away like this guy did. Jesus says a very famous saying after that in verse 24. Jesus, seeing that he had become sad, said, How difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. He says, See this guy? This guy trusted in his own wealth. This guy glorified in his own wealth. And he walked away. He wouldn't lay it aside to follow me. And Jesus says, If you glorify in your own wealth, if you are satisfied with nothing but your wealth, it's hard for you to enter the kingdom of heaven. Jesus says it's harder for, it's, it's, it's impossible. He said a camel cannot go through the eye of a needle. Now listen to this, verse 26. I love it. Um, 
I put in my notes, this begins their degroup discussion. Remember, all these events hap- as all these events are happening, the disciples are always right there watching. And so they say, hey, so this guy's walking away. And it says, those who heard it said, then who can be saved? Who can be saved? This is really similar to when Christ in the Sermon on the Mount says, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees, you cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. They're like, wait, the Pharisees are the most righteous of society. If they can't enter the kingdom, then how can we? The wealthy are the most righteous of society. If the wealthy can't enter the kingdom, then how can we? They say, then who can be saved? Jesus says, I'm glad you asked. But he said, what is impossible with man is possible with God. Amen? It's one of my favorite verses. What is impossible with man is possible with God. Again, you cannot achieve your salvation. I cannot achieve my salvation. We receive it by the free gift of God. Christ Jesus is our eternal life. Amen? Um, Steve quoted John 3.16 a few, a few weeks ago. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. How is salvation possible? Because God gave his son that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Or Romans 1.16. Romans 1.16, one of my favorite verses. For I am not ashamed of the gospel for it is the power of God, what? Unto salvation. That the gospel is the power unto salvation. The gospel that says you are not good enough no matter all of your righteous acts, your wealth, whatever you glorify in or trust in, none of us are good enough. And so Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel for it is the power of God for salvation. For in the gospel, the righteousness of God has been revealed. What is impossible with man is possible with God because of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Who can be saved? All of us can if we put our faith and hope and trust in Christ. It's a free gift. Okay, I love this. Um, continuing on, Peter said, remember, this is the D group discussion. Peter said, and it's kind of the proverbial question in the room, the elephant in the room. Hey, man, what about us? So all this is going on, and Peter said, well, like, are, we, are we good? Am I good? Um, because he says, see, Jesus, we have left our homes and followed you. So this man could not give up. He couldn't lay it aside, the rich young ruler, to follow Christ. And Peter says, well, we've given it all away to follow you. Is that okay? And so that's personal application point number two. Personal application point number one is what is, what is hindering you? What is clinging so closely to you to keep you from in, being in the race? But personal application point number two is when you follow Christ, are you willing to follow Christ as these disciples did? Peter said, we've given it all up to follow you, Jesus. There's two S words that I always talk about when I talk about being a disciple. It's surrender and sacrifice. Peter says here, I have surrendered it all, Jesus. I have sacrificed it all for you. I've give, remember the fishing boats? Remember the life I used to live back here? I've now surrendered that life and sacrificed my time, sacrificed my energy, sacrificed my effort to follow you as a disciple. Peter says, is that okay? So personal application point number two is, if you are a believer, have you surrendered your will? Have you surrendered your agenda to God's agenda for your life? And I think that's a, that's a message that needs to be preached in the American church today. I think for so long we have, we have taught in and glorified in easy believism in the church. 
And uh, I think that we need to go back and look what these men and women were called to when they, they were called to lay it aside and follow Christ, to surrender and sacrifice as his disciples. So have you done that? Have you, what is clinging to you and what do you still hold on to to keep you from fully following Christ? Peter said, we've left it all, our homes, and we followed you. And listen to Jesus' answer in verse 29. And Jesus said to them, truly, I say to you. When Jesus says truly, truly, or truly, he says, listen up. Truly, I say to you, there is no one who has left house or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God who will not receive many times more in this time and in the age to come eternal life. I love it. He talks to them in, in light of their laying aside their weights and their sin, in, lights of, in light of them sacrificing and surrendering their lives to follow Christ as a disciple, he appeals to what they will receive in this life and in the life to come. He goes straight to rewards. He talks to them about how you can invest your life in the life of others. In about four weeks from this text, about four to five weeks in the life of Christ from this text, he will appear to them in his resurrected body on the mountain of Galilee and he will say, hey guys, all authority on heaven and earth has been given to me. You go and make disciples of all nations. You invest your life in the lives of others for the sake of the kingdom and you will be rewarded. Amen? He says, it's all worth it. And so those of us who are discipling or who are running the race, those of you, sometimes we get tired. We need to know that our efforts, our stewardship of our salvation is not in vain, that there will be reward both here in this life, and that may be more service. It may be more people to pour into, but they will definitely be eternal rewards for investing your life. Steve mentioned a few weeks ago, there are two things you can invest in that have eternal value. Two things on this earth right now that you can invest in that have eternal value. One is the word of God and the other is the souls of other men and women. The word of God and souls of other men and women. And so personal application point number three is are you becoming a man of the book? Are you becoming a woman of the book? Are you investing time and energy and effort into the word of God and then are you investing your life in the life of at least one other person as a disciple maker to a disciplee? Christ would tell them, you're going to make disciples of all nations. And how you steward your salvation, you will be rewarded for not only in this life, but also in the age to come. Um, there's a, 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 several men that I hold really dear in my life, and, and many of you guys uh, know a few of them. Um, this story began in um, Poland before World War II and during World War II. There's a man named Arnold Frutenbond. I don't know how to spell Frutenbond, but that's his name. Arnold Frutenbond. And Arnold was born in Poland as a Polish Jew. When the Nazi regime began to take power, the Jewish people became, came under intense persecution and they were about to be deported, Arnold and his family. And they were going to a concentration camp. And Arnold says he remembers when he was a five-year-old boy. Four or five, he said it was. This hit home to me because I've got five-year-old boys. He said, I remember crawling to our freedom under the cover of night 
under the fire from Nazi soldiers and my parents and our family getting out under the cover of night and escaping the Third Reich and escaping to America. So he came as an immigrant like many of them did and ended up in New York City. Arnold Fruitenbaum, and as, as the Lord would have it, this Jewish family moves into an apartment complex right next to a Christian family. And so the kids begin to go over, Arnold and his sisters begin to go over to the Christian home, and the Christian parents shared the gospel with these children over time, and Arnold became a follower of Christ. And he goes home and he tells his parents, hey, I figured out what it means to, to inherit eternal life. I figured out what it means to enter the kingdom of God. I found the answer to all, the, the, all the, the shadows in the Old Testament. It's Jesus. And his parents said, you may never speak of that again in this house. And he says, you don't understand. I've just heard the greatest news. He's a nine-year-old boy. And they said, if you say that again, you're out of here. And he would not renounce his faith, even under persecution from his family. And at age nine, his family kicked him out of his home, had a living funeral for him, and that Christian man and woman adopted Arnold, and he became their son and daughter. He, he held on to the cross and his family put him out of the house, and he was adopted by this lady. And they began to teach him the Scripture, and Arnold grew up to become a great man of God. He, he understood the Scripture from a, from a Jewish perspective, and he grew up to really understand Christ and really train in Bible. And there was a businessman several years back from Memphis, Tennessee, that went to a summer camp where Arnold was teaching the Bible. And this man's name was Tom Murray, a very successful businessman in Memphis. And, and some of you know Tom. And Tom was intrigued by Arnold's teaching, just how Arnold could handle the word and teach the word. And so Tom began to be discipled by Arnold, this little nine-year-old boy who had now grown up. He had laid aside every weight. He had laid aside every sin. He had followed Christ, surrendered and sacrificed to follow Christ. And now Arnold began to invest in Tom, this businessman, from Memphis. Well, Tom began to grow and he just could not, he could not believe the amount of truth and the amount of doctrine and the amount of knowledge he was gaining about Christ. And, and so Tom began to take all of his notes from, from Arnold and a few other teachers and he began to compile them because Tom was seeking the truth. And so he called his material Truth Seekers. And so Tom, as he was being discipled by these men, by Arnold and a few other teachers, came back to Memphis and looked around the city and found other men that he could build into. Specifically, he called 12 of them. And Tom spent year after year after year investing in these men what Arnold had invested in him. And one of those men is Dr. David Libby, who's one of our elders. And Dr. David Libby spent year after year after year investing in me. And I just thought about that picture today that it goes back to a little boy who laid it aside. A little boy who, like Peter said, left all to follow Christ. Can you imagine the surrender and the sacrifice of this boy getting kicked out of his home but saying, I'm going to cling to the cross I'm going to cling to Christ. And then as he grew, he began to then look out and invest in the word of God and invest in others. And he found Tom who gave it up and invested in the word of God and invested in others. Who found David who gave it up, who laid it aside, surrendered and invested in the word of God and invested in others. Who found me and many other people in this room to disciple and train. And I just can't help but think how Arnold's reward is going to be great in heaven. And then Arnold will turn around and point to the young lady and the young man who led him to Christ. And the rewards will keep on coming in and coming in. It's gold 
silver and precious jewels is what it says in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Gold, silver, and precious jewels, that's what will survive the judgment. And I'm telling you, those men invested in my life. They've invested in each other's life. And so what a picture it is for us. Now, maybe we're not under that amount of persecution. Maybe if you come to Christ, you're not going to get kicked out of house and home. But that may happen one day in this country, and we need to be ready for that. We need to be able to follow Christ, to surrender and sacrifice at all costs. Amen? The cost of following Christ needs to be preached today. Christ ends this section as he does the same in Matthew and Mark and Luke. He ends this section by talking about his death. He says here, And taking the twelve, he said to them, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and everything that is written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished. Luke 18, 31. Remember, we're on our way to Jerusalem. We're on our way to Jerusalem. We're on our way to Jerusalem. And he says, I'm headed to Jerusalem. And what I came to earth to do will be accomplished. Like he was born in Bethlehem, but he was made for Jerusalem. He was born and lived and died for the cross of Christ. And so in this story, you see the humble, you see the proud, and you see the cross here. And so I thought about those points, laying aside every weight and sin, surrendering and sacrifice and following Jesus and investing my life and you investing your lives in the lives of others. He ends the message at the cross. And he said, everything that I've done, everything that I've lived for, the whole reason I'm here on earth is to go to the cross where he would be on the cross and he would yell, it is finished. It is accomplished. I came to do what I came to do. Listen to what he says in verse 32. For he will be delivered over to the Gentiles and will be mocked and shamefully treated and spit upon. And after flogging him, they will kill him. And on the third day, hallelujah, he will rise. Verse 34 says, but the disciples did not yet understand this. After he would rise from the dead, he would appear to them and explain all this to them. He would appear and clear up their confusion and send them the Holy Spirit to bring to remembrance every thing he had taught them. So how do we live as humble, reliant children relying on our Father? How do we live like that in this world? It's because of the cross. It's because of the cross. Like Jesus, Philippians 2 says, he did not account equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he humbled himself. Amen? He humbled himself being born in the likeness of man and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. How can I live as humble child in this world? How can you live as a humble child in this world? Because the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords humbled himself and went to the cross. If the King of Kings humbled himself, how much more me? How can I lay it aside? How can I lay aside the weights and the sin which, which I hate, which cling to me? How can I do that? Because Christ laid it aside. He temporarily left glory, came into the hell of our own lives. He laid it aside for the joy set before him. Hebrews 12, 2 says, he endured the cross. So how can I lay it aside? If the king of kings can lay it aside, how much more me? 
How can I surrender my life to Christ? How can I sacrifice my life to Christ? It's because of the cross of Christ. His whole life was nothing but surrender to the will of the Father. His whole life was nothing but a spotless sacrifice for me and for you. So how can I surrender my will and follow him just like he surrendered his will and went with the will of the Father? If the King of kings can surrender and sacrifice, how much more me? And if the king of kings could spend his life investing in men who would invest in disciples, who would invest in disciples, who would invest in disciples to receive a reward, how much more me and how much more you. Amen? See, following Christ only makes sense because of the cross. Humbling yourself before God only makes sense because of the cross. Giving it up only makes sense because of the cross. And Jesus would tell these men, it is is worth it. You keep running. You keep running. You keep your eyes on me. And that's my message to you this morning. Let's keep running. Let's keep following Christ because of his cross. It is worth it and you will be rewarded. Amen.